Hi, welcome to the Fast Life with Diabetes podcast. My name is Lucy Fisher. On this podcast, we'll discuss everything related to intermittent fasting and type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We'll share tips and tricks and we'll reveal some of the challenges that we've all faced as we go through this journey. We'll also have some fascinating guests that will share their stories. Thanks so much for joining. It's going to be a great show. Also, before we get started, I just want to remind you that I am not a doctor. Before beginning an intermittent fasting protocol or making changes to your medication, I highly recommend that you speak to your doctor. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining today. Today we have on Dr. Nadia Pataguana, and I'm sure you've heard of her. She is a naturopathic doctor and she works at The Fasting Method. She works there with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. She's a dietary coach there. She has also written a book with Dr. Fung called The PCOS Plan, Prevent and Reverse Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Through Diet and Fasting. And I thought she'd be a really great guest for this podcast because I've noticed through my interviews with many women that they have both type 2 diabetes and PCOS. And there happens to be a very good reason for that, which is PCOS and type 2 diabetes are caused by insulin resistance. So Dr. Padaguana and I speak about that in great detail. We also talk about other women's issues, including perimenopause and menopause, and just the benefits of fasting and diet in order to reverse insulin resistance. And this is obviously applicable to men as well. So the, the conversation is very interesting and it's one that she explained a lot of things to me uh, and after this conversation i was able to understand things a little bit better so i think it's very eye-opening and i'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it and i want to thank dr padaguana for her time and i'll link in the show notes all the places that you can find her it was a real pleasure and a privilege to speak to her today so please enjoy this episode hi dr nadia thank you so much for being with me today i'm so happy to see you well, I am happy to be here, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I've, I've been a longtime follower of your work, Megan's, Dr. Fung, and I'm really excited to speak to you in particular because of your background, specifically with women's issues. And I think uh, for a long time, I didn't really put two and two together with insulin resistance and a lot of women's issues. And I definitely want to get into that with you. And so I think you're the perfect guest to, to talk about those things. But before we get into that, I also think your backstory is really interesting. Maybe you can just give us some highlights on that. That would be great. I'll try. It, okay. It can get, it can get long just because I know. I, uh, <laughs> well, you know, let, let, let's, uh, let me summarize a little bit. Like you, I also did not know the connection between insulin resistance and women's health uh, at all. So I started my career 20 years ago as a naturopath, a recently graduated naturopath. And instead of and I, I grew up in Canada, went to school in Canada. And so instead of opening up a clinic in Canada, like the, you know, the majority of my colleagues, I decided to go back to my home country. So where I am originally from, and I am originally from Mozambique, which is a Portuguese speaking, uh, former Portuguese colony in the Southeast uh, coast of Africa, Southern Africa right on the border of South Africa. So 20 years ago, I moved my 20 something year old self to Mozambique in the hopes of working with the impoverished community. I really wanted to work with mummies and babies. I wanted to learn some traditional Mozambican medicine. Um, and that was not available to me. I 
tried real hard through the ministry of health and it wasn't available to me. So just out of pure fluke, I uh, requested a meeting with a minister of health and he suggested that I open a clinic in the capital of Mozambique. So instead of in the rural areas that I thought I was going to be working in, in the capital of Mozambique and that I work with people uh, with the obesity and diabetes epidemic. And I thought this is absolutely crazy. Why do people in Mozambique need help with weight loss? Uh, And uh, and I quickly learned that sort of the globalization and where, uh, you know, of course, people in the more uh, rural uh, areas, you know, had some nutritional trouble, some at, at the time Mozambique was considered, I think, the poorest country in the world with the highest malnutrition of that particular year. Um but in the cities, uh, it was a lot of globalization. There was a lot of junk food places. The, the food, the, the traditional sort of diet was mixed in now with very glo- globalized, you know, sort of Western uh, SAD, you know, the standard American diet uh, influence and whatnot. And also, I think because uh, the capital of Mozambique uh, had a whole lot of expats. So lots of people from all over the world. It's, it was, you know, it is still a very fun and busy city. So at 20 something years old with zero experience in the field, I had to open up or I was, it was suggested to me that I open up a clinic because apparently there was a lot of demand and there was absolutely no one at the time in Mozambique doing this. So I had a bit of background, at least more than other people had at the time. And I had a lot of very willing uh, and um, forgiving uh, people <laughs> willing to work with me and to learn with me. So then I sort of, and because I didn't really have any guidelines to follow, I just sort of started some trial and errors. I started with right off the bat with a lot of real food uh, approaches, a lot of what I called at the time detoxes, because I was coming out of a naturopathic college and we had all these detoxes. So I had a whole lot of um example menus to to follow and to tweak and sort of that's how the first 10 years of my career went it was a lot of growth very very quick uh I had to grow very quickly what I also was very lucky to have was a lot of willing MDs uh that were very very willing to work with me the the minute that and it was a you know a smaller community we got to know each other very complimentary type of setting whereas I worked with a lot of gynecologists not a lot but a, you know one in particular gynecologist cardiologist gastroenterologists psychiatrists psychologists uh in 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 different areas so it was it was quite interesting dermatologists so I got to really start to make links between certain organs and um, died. And, and really, it was just a great opportunity as a naturopath to work with people as a whole and not as an organ. It was more of a holistic approach, but very diet focused because those were the tools available to me in Mozambique. And that was the that was the demand, not so much supplements. So I'm one of those weird naturopaths that knows nothing about supplements. I don't consider myself an expert at all when it comes to supplements. Uh, but very much food has always been my medicine. Along the way, like you, I started to make some connections and realize that women's health and their diet or their metabolic health were very much interconnected. And so uh, that was quite interesting. At first, I started to explain that because I did get a reputation very, very quickly for helping women women with fertility issues through diet. Uh, that was something that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't necessarily working with people for reproduction. Most people were coming to me for weight loss, but I had such a big pool of patients at the time, seeing as I was the only person in this place doing this. Um, and people were, women were getting pregnant in their late thirties, early forties, 
women who'd been trying to get pregnant for years and years. And so it, it became more than just a coincidence. It became a definite link. And because it's such a small town, it's not even such a small town, but it is one of these communities where people word of mouth. And, and that's how I, I um, was lucky to have such success in Mozambique. People were very willing to share uh, their stories and, and their experiences and who they were seeing. And so um, that became very known. I, I developed a reputation for this very, very quickly. At first, my explanation to people, because people would come and ask, you know, why, why am I pregnant? Why is my wife pregnant after, you know, uh, all these years and some amazing stories. And my explanation was always, oh, it's the detox. It's the cleanse. We're cleaning the body, right? That was the initial thing. But then I struggled with, uh, you know, unexpectedly because I did not apparently have metabolic issues. I was very thin growing up. I grew up into a very, very thin adult. And I started struggling uh, as my husband and I started trying to conceive. I myself was struggling with fertility challenges. And so I started to connect the dots. So I knew my clients had um, and, and, and not only did I start to connect the dots, but in myself, I could see that it was hormonal. I started to suspect that I had PCOS because PCOS is not an unknown condition. It is very known. I just think it's very uh, mistreated. Women with PCOS, unfortunately, are disregarded like I was and mistreated. So I started to connect the dots between the hormonal part of it. I did start to notice that even though I was very, very thin, there was definitely a central obesity um, you know, as, as certain things started to, to certain expressions of the, of the condition of the syndrome started to show up in me, it was related to the central obesity. So I started to press my gynecologist at the time that I highly, you know, I thought I had PCOS and I thought it was necessary that I do some sort of a diet. Really, uh, I wanted a diagnosis, just like the young women that I work with now, you know, a diagnosis is very important, because if you have a diagnosis, then you feel like you know what to do to treat it. And I had made some connections between the hormonal um, connection between PCOS, well, of course, fertility, everybody knew, but I had this extra link, which was the diet. So I was eager to go home and do this diet. And of course, you know, my story a little bit, I got pregnant. And uh, it's funny, because every day, I, I literally mean this every single day I get an email just today. I got an email of a similar story and it's, you know, it was just serendipity. So my whole life then um, I do work with people with obesity still and diabetes, but you know, there's an extra special focus. I wrote a book called the PCOS plan with Dr. Jason Fung in 2020, just, you know, nearly 20 years of my, of my history. I, I first actually realized the link between PCOS and insulin resistance with the Mozambican gynecologist that I had worked with for all these years, even though my gynecologist was in South Africa. And unfortunately, this doctor completely disregarded me because I was so thin and he didn't think I had PCOS. And then um, in talking with my very good friend and colleague at the time in Mozambique, who also happened to sort of, sort of be my gynecologist when I wasn't going to my doctor in South Africa, she said to me, Nadia, of course, you're not getting pregnant. You have PCOS, you're insulin resistant. Remember, that's why the Clomid is not working. And, and it was just like, boom, everything. It was like the, that was the moment, I think, for me many, many years ago. And so from then on, it, of course, it's been a totally different focus. Yeah, that's, that's a really good synopsis of your career up until the point when you met Dr. Jason Fung and Megan and started working in your current capacity. Before we move on to that, though, and I, I think maybe a lot of people don't understand what a naturopathic doctor is or a functional medicine doctor versus another doctor they might see. Can you explain that for people? 
Sure, as much as I can. So I, I went to school a long, long time ago. <laughs> I feel like at this point, uh, but at the time I went to the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and we, uh, I believe it to have been a very good um, postgraduate degree that basically, it was very complimentary. It basically combined a lot of medical sciences with a lot of uh, alternative treatments or complementary treatments as I would prefer to call them because it's, it's never, for me, it's never been an alternative. It's always been a compliment. Um, and luckily I came to, I went to Mozambique with that idea. So in school I did, uh, most of the medical sciences. And then we did, of course, learn a, a lot about nutrition, a lot more than conventional medical doctors do a lot, but our nutritional focus was very different than uh, the dietitian's focus. We weren't taught how to make menus. We were taught more about the nutritional information of foods. Uh, we did have you know, botany. So we learned about plants. We did have homeopathy. We did have a lot of traditional Chinese medicine and that incorporated a whole lot of stuff, both herbal and acupuncture, which I did a lot of in my career in Mozambique. I did a lot of acupuncture in Mozambique um, and a few other complementary sort of, and, and I find that most naturopaths are different from one another because everybody tends to sort of go towards one thing that they uh, like more or stronger at, I ended up going towards nutrition, not so much because I felt like I was stronger at that, but it was just because that was the, the demand at the place that I was at. It was basically, I was put in that situation and I haven't done anything else but that for the last 20 years. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's needed, especially in probably the PCOS women's health diabetes space, because I told you that I, when I was diagnosed with type one, my parents took me to a naturopath and he prescribed a very low carb diet for me as a way to extend my honeymoon period. And that's not anything my endocrinologist had talked to me about. In fact, they were pushing carbs on me and just saying, cover it with insulin. And I do think you need to have an understanding of both in order to properly treat these conditions, because obviously if you understand how food acts in the body and you can prescribe both you know, the types of foods you should be thinking about, fasting, obviously, and you can tie all those things together with, okay, you need this medicine for this long, and maybe you can taper off of it at a certain point or, or whatever the case may be. So I love that your area kind of ties those two things together. So thank you for explaining that so well. well absolutely. Your condition is a prime example. As much as I'd like to say, uh, you know, that we would like to treat everyone with diet only, it's not possible, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I bet you your entire, well, not I bet you, I know as well as you know that your entire community is very, very thankful for the discovery of insulin and exogenous insulin for type one diabetics. And, and like that, you know, I have a particular medical condition that involves my kidneys. And if it wasn't for emergency medicine, I wouldn't be here today either. So it's the idea that uh, you know, it really is the complementary care, I think, you know, Dr. Jason Fung is a conventional medical doctor, he's a kidney specialist. Uh, so, you know, it, in sometimes it does sound like we're bashing the conventional medical system a little bit, people tend to be sometimes not happy, I myself wasn't happy with my medical doctor either. Uh, but it, it, the, the, we have to sort of get to the root of the problem, right? It's, it's the medical training that needs to change, uh, improve, and, and we can help uh, with that. And people are trying, you know, more of a grassroots type of approach, right? From, from um, yeah. So anyway, I, I completely agree with you. You're a prime example. Yeah. And I see, you know, all of the, and I've talked to so many people now that have gone on metformin, for example, and they, they 
tolerate it terribly. Almost everybody to a person says that they they had a hard time with it, whether they had to quit it in the first couple of days or the first couple of months, whether they could get their blood sugars under control or not. And then that's kind of what led them to, I got to figure out another way to handle this. And even for me as a type one, if I can take less insulin, then law of smaller numbers, it's less highs, less lows, you know, it's everything you can do to sort of limit the amount of insulin, whether it's your own insulin from your pancreas or it's external insulin really helps you to just lead a better life with less medicine and less highs and lows. I'll tell you one thing that I say in my uh, consultations and my community meetings all the time, people with diabetes have been my greatest teachers. There's no bigger challenge than working with people with type one diabetes. So any and every little thing that you have learned uh, you can teach and help so many people, but exactly what you just said about um, any, you know, if you cannot live without insulin, but if you can learn how to lower that dose, whether it be your own internal production of insulin or your external, you know, exogenous insulin injections, you, you know, you know, you're reducing, of course, your risk of not only metabolic syndrome, but all the other associated serious uh, medical conditions. So um, I, I'll say this again, people with diabetes have been my greatest teachers. I think I have learned more from them and have been able to help more people because of people with diabetes. And I say this all the time, I'm not saying this because it's you, Lucy, I had my diabetes meeting today in our community. Every Wednesday, I have a diabetes meeting and I start every Wednesday by saying this. Oh yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. So I, I'm constantly performing experiments on my blood sugar with fasting and nutrition and all these other things. So yeah, I, I believe that. And um, speaking of diabetes, and it seems to me like there's a very, I don't know if there's an actual formal correlation between PCOS and type two diabetes. Is there, or is it just that they're both, they both involve insulin resistance? Well, that's the correlation, but there is a direct correlation. Do most so people with PCOS also have type two? Well, they, they are more likely to develop type two. So this is the way I describe it. So obesity, PCOS, and type two diabetes are different expressions of insulin resistance. There are other expressions of insulin resistance. So they're like first cousins and they share the same maternal grandmother, but there is a, um, it, it's like they say, you know, genetic, uh, genetics, um, loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger, but your genetic expressions of each of these is going to differ. So I am clearly, I am genetically predisposed to PCOS and diabetes, but not obesity, where somebody else might be genetically predisposed to obesity, but not diabetes. And so we see this, even though insulin resistance is on a spectrum in the higher up that spectrum, you go, meaning the more insulin resistant you become, the more likely you are to express the various expressions and more and more. So you do get people with morbid obesity who eventually develop type two diabetes, even, even if they weren't genetically predisposed to it. The people that are genetically predisposed to a certain condition tend to develop it very early and uh, with a lot less insulin resistance. So like I weighed less than hundred pounds, yet I had PCOS and was already pre-diabetic and hypertensive. That was my genetic predisposition. And yes, I was already on the spectrum of insulin resistance, even though I wasn't overweight. But very, very quickly, it became obvious that I did have fatty liver. I did have uh, central obesity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the good thing is, is that whether you have PCOS or PCOS and type two diabetes or any of these other factors that are tied to insulin resistance, the treatment's actually the same, right? 
That's right. So if the problem is insulin, as Dr. Fung would say, and, and, and I'm quoting him from our book, if the problem is insulin, then the solution is to lower insulin. So if your particular expression of hyperinsulinemia or of too much insulin is obesity, then the solution is to lower insulin so that you can lose weight. If your particular expression is you know, the many symptoms of PCOS and the solution is to lower insulin so that your acne will clear up so that your hirsutism will clear up so that you will uh, ovulate and menstruate. And, you know, the same goes for diabetes. You know, if your particular expression is higher blood sugars, and I'm not talking about type ones, I'm talking about type twos. If your particular expression is higher blood sugars and lowering insulin is going to help. Um, and people see this cl uh, mostly, you know, the, the number that I ask them to look at is their fasting uh, blood sugar, as you see that fasting blood sugar improve or worsen, then it's a direct correlation to your insulin resistance. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now I know obviously you have quite a few patients and you interact with people on a daily basis and have seen many, many stories of both intermittent fasting and a low carb, high fat diet working. If somebody comes to you with PCOS, similarly, if they come to you with type two diabetes, I, I speak to mostly people with type two diabetes on type one as well, but you know, usually when they adopt an intermittent fasting lifestyle and then also change their diet, they tend to get off medication very quickly with PCOS. Do you see the same thing happen? Do they start ovulating rather quickly or does it take some time? I'd like to say that it's quick because it can be very quick. I, I find that there's a, a few problems with PCOS. The number one problem is the conflicting information. And I find that when women feel like they're getting bombarded with different information from all sides, they feel paralyzed. And so sometimes they'll start with something and then next week they're doing something else. And then the next week they're, and they're feeling so confused that they, 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 and then they get, there's a lot of fear mongering too, because there's a lot of myths out there about fasting in women and hormones. So there's like this very general sort of myth that fasting is bad for women because it is bad for your hormones. So even though, you know, I've written a book on PCOS and I'm very adamant about this message. Women are not just hearing my message. They're hearing all these other messages. So I, I would like to say that if, if somebody's journey were linear, if they were to uh, find the right protocol and if they were to follow that right protocol, then it, yes, it would be very quick. You know, you got the, the miracle babies, you've got the young women who, you know, whose face clears up, you know, all these wonderful stories, but the journey is not linear and it's not easy because mostly because of all of the conflicting information out there. Yeah. And I know, especially I've heard you talk about this in a number of different formats about how PCOS is sort of hard to diagnose for people. So maybe they've gone through different treatment options that some of which are working, some of which are not. You must get patients when they're in a very, they must be very confused at the outset, I assume, until you can kind of educate them on, on what, what they're doing. The, the problem with PCOS, I was talking about this yesterday, because on Tuesdays I have a women in fasting group that we meet. It's a very large group of women. And most of these women are, you know, women of all ages, but a great majority of the women are postmenopausal women, very experienced women, the type of women that have been out there and have been put on every single diet, have been told every single thing. Um, and so they, they do, they're very wise and have a lot of experience and information. And so we talk about this and I often question these women and I say, why do you think that PCOS is so mistreated? highly disregarded. It is the most common endocrine condition in young women. So a uh, very modest estimate is that 10 to 30% of women 
in their reproductive years have PCOS. It is much more than that. It's obvious that it's much more than that. However, it, that's probably the, the number of people that are diagnosed, okay? There's a lot more women that are not diagnosed. Uh, our call, you know, you mentioned Megan Ramos a few times, you know, she's been quoted as saying, uh, you know, consider that you have PCOS unless proven otherwise at this point in time because of how high metabolic syndrome is, insulin resistance. And so, as I said at the beginning, women want a diagnosis, but you're not always going to get the diagnosis. I don't think that diagnosing PCOS is very hard, but I think that it's not defined properly because it's a syndrome. It's also a diagnosis of exclusion. So you do have to uh, exclude a whole bunch of other conditions. So you know, it is not diagnosed appropriately. And as you said, the treatment for PCOS, and I'll say this again, uh, it's, it, it is very common. It is very, very serious. It is very, very debilitating, but yet it is highly disregarded. And obviously it's mistreated. Why is it disregarded? A condition that is so prevalent, a condition that affects so many people worldwide, a condition that is highly associated with the most serious and deadly diseases in all, the entire world, cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Why is it so disregarded, right? And so that's a question and I'm not gonna get into that. But what I do think is that uh, the diagnosis is hard because of that. It's hard because the current uh, diagnostic criteria are very, very simple. And I don't go around diagnosing people because I can't uh, unless I were to see them in clinic. Um, I, I just talk about it. And, and so it, you can, like I did, I did push my doctor for a diagnosis because I knew what I was talking about. Often people feel, as I said, dismissed. I was totally dismissed and I just kept pushing. Do you need a diagnosis? I don't know. Some people do. When they get a diagnosis, then they start doing a lot of research, right? Because what is very likely, most likely prescribed when a young woman gets diagnosed with PCOS, the birth control pill which is not a uh, solution. It's not a treatment. It is simply something that's going to help manage certain symptoms, not all the symptoms, but it's basically what Dr. Fung calls a Band-Aid for a bullet hole, right? A bullet hole. And so most of us, myself included, was on, I was on the birth control pill for 10 years to manage my symptoms, right? I didn't even know I had PCOS. When I was uh, 16 or 17, I went to see my doctor. I told her I had all of these concerns, one of them being very irregular period. I had a lot of acne and the solution was to put me on the pill. Wasn't even, you know, no, no, nothing. PCOS wasn't even brought up at the time. Although obviously that's what I had and uh, facial hair. So, you know, basically, except for uh, doing an ultrasound and diagnosing me with, with polycysts, which are the multiple cysts on ovaries, I, you know, it was pretty obvious that I most likely had PCOS because it is the most likely you do have to exclude other conditions. But anyway, I was put on the pill and I stayed on the pill for 10 years. I could, and this is my story is this very similar to other women's stories, except that I was very thin again, because I didn't have a genetic predisposition to obesity like many other people do, right? Very frequently associated. And so the pill. And then when you're 30, so this is when you're in your late teens, early 20s, then when you're 30 or 30 something and start wanting to get pregnant, you go to your doctor, you express the same concerns. And what do they do? They give you fertility treatments. At no point is the insulin resistance being uh, addressed, period. When you have insulin resistance with PCOS, does it show up as, as higher blood sugars or it shows up with the other symptoms like the facial hair and the irregular periods and all that stuff? 
It depends, right? It can, but it doesn't necessarily have to because remember, it is its own exclusive insulin resistance expression. It's called diabetes of the ovaries because the excessive insulin is causing all of these, uh, all of the symptoms. Okay. 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 So it is actually the root cause of PCOS. I mean, there might be something causing the insulin resistance, which then, you know, people, a lot of people say, well, high stress. Yes. High stress. It is one of my five pillars, right? Stress can, and many of us know both physical and emotional stress that raises your insulin tremendously. So you have, so it is, it is very likely. And and of course there is a genetic component. Like I said, there's a genetic we all have genetic, uh, predispositions. Okay. And so any one of us that develops insulin resistance over time will have different expressions. One of the very common expressions is PCOS. So some women that will have a predisposition, they're they're at higher risk for eventually developing diabetes. They're much higher risk for developing gestational diabetes, right? So pregnancy diabetes and type two diabetes. So they could develop higher blood sugars earlier in life, like I did, but not necessarily. You can have PCOS and be obese, and you can have PCOS and not be obese, and you can have PCOS and have high blood sugars, and you can have PCOS and not have high blood sugars. The root cause of all of these, however, is still insulin resistance. So instead of addressing the insulin, how to lower insulin, and that does include some stress management, right? But it also includes how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, and stress and sleep management, which are also related, those two, instead of addressing that right from the get-go, when they're 12, 13, 15, 20, 30 years old, we start off with one medication and then another medication. And eventually women with PCOS are are on 10, 20 medications and eventually develop all these uh, serious conditions. The other thing, important thing to remember, and I must say this because I do say this in our book, is that PCOS women are not infertile. So very often the focus is getting pregnant, getting pregnant, getting pregnant. And that becomes the only focus. You can get pregnant with PCOS. It's just harder. Why? Because your menstrual cycle is more irregular and you uh, may not ovulate every month. It doesn't mean you do not ovulate every month. It just means you may not ovulate every month uh, or less frequently, but you can get pregnant. And then what happens if you get pregnant with PCOS? You're at a much higher risk for serious pregnancy complications and your fetus and newborn baby are at at a much, much higher risk for very, very serious complications, miscarriage and uh, gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and eclampsia and all of these other things. So both for the mom and the baby, very, very serious. And then of course the children born to mothers with PCOS are at a much, much higher risk very likely will develop metabolic syndrome very early on in life. So childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So if our focus is getting PCOS women pregnant, as opposed to reversing PCOS before women get pregnant, we're just perpetuating this problem further for the woman. We're putting her at a much higher risk of insulin resistance and all the other conditions and associated conditions and for the next generation, which is what happened to my children. So yes, I got pregnant very, very quickly, very easily, but both of my children were likely born with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and, and struggle with it to this day, both my girls. Wow. I didn't, I didn't realize the, the chain from having PCOS yourself and then how it's passed on or how, I don't know, maybe your mother passed that on to you as well. I don't know. It is very likely. The, the, the thing is, remember I said genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. So my mother's lifestyle to this day is to basically do intermittent fasting 
work like crazy, eat very little. And she has this aversion to junk food. So she only eats fish and vegetables most days of the week and always has been like this. So she herself seems to have a tendency towards PCOS because she had fertility issues herself at a very young age. My mother got married at 16. Crazy. Had me at 18. But she had what she calls fertility struggles because it took her two whole years to get pregnant. And she had a whole uh, a whole lot of potential symptoms of PCOS, but her lifestyle never triggered it to develop, I believe. Um, and to this day, she's in her mid 60s. She doesn't have diabetes. Uh, she doesn't have central obesity because she's so highly focused on her lifestyle. Um, what, what I think happened is that stress, stress is a big one. And when she was uh, trying to get pregnant with me and while she was pregnant with me, I do think she took some medications. And when I was born, this is a direct link. When I was born, I was born in Mozambique in 1977. And it was the time in Mozambique where Mozambique was going through war and independence and lack of, she was very young, lack of knowledge and information. I was given milk with honey as opposed to breast milk. So there's a just, I, I do think there's a genetic component, but I think my life started off like that. In my entire childhood into adulthood, I would not eat real food. I would not eat meat and vegetables at all. I would only eat carbs. I would only accept bread, rice, uh, milk with sugar, um, I, fruit or candies if I could. I would not accept any other food except for that high carb, high sugar because that's how I started off my life. So I do think that my insulin resistance was highly, um, you know, it, it was- It was exacerbated by your lifestyle. Was. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And actually there's another follow-on question I wanted to ask you because I've heard you talk about that you're in perimenopause now. I think I am as well. I think I just started. And so obviously I guess PCOS isn't as much of a concern when you're out of your childbearing years, but does it have any, you know, let's say you don't have express, you don't have type two diabetes and you only have PCOS. It makes sense to continue the lifestyle anyway, right? Because you still will have insulin resistance throughout your whole life. Is that right? That's exactly it. And so I work with tons of postmenopausal women. Uh, most uh, people that I work with are postmenopausal women, like I said, and many of them, I would say at least, I, I, I don't want to put a percentage on it it's so hard, but most of them relate to a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about PCOS as having happened to them. And some were diagnosed and some were not diagnosed with PCOS. But again, the diagnosis of PCOS, the name is just another expression of insulin resistance. So whether or not you've been diagnosed with PCOS, whether or not you have the expressions of PCOS, if you have insulin resistance, and if you have any of the expressions of insulin resistance, like obesity, type two diabetes, fatty liver. Uh, today, of course, more and more people are talking about things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So again, we're not just looking at uh, treatment or therapeutic uh, healing. Uh, we are too, a reversal of diabetes, reversal of PCOS, but we're also looking at prevention of these highly associated concerns, whether they're caused or not caused by insulin resistance. Many would say that they are like Alzheimer's is now, they call it type three diabetes, right? Many people do anyway, just like PCOS is called diabetes of the ovaries. And um, Dr. Fung wrote another book called The Cancer Code. So there's obviously many, many cancers are highly associated with insulin resistance. So whether you are premenopausal, postmenopausal, whether you had PCOS or didn't have PCOS, 
you know, it, it's important to realize that, again, as Dr. Fung would say, if the problem is insulin, the solution is to lower insulin, no matter what the expression is. And also, um, you can bring yourself up that spectrum and you can bring yourself down that spectrum. It's, it's really important that we understand this. And this is the hardest part to understand is, but, but what is insulin and how do you lower insulin and how do you raise insulin? But it's the one thing that we know that we can control. So you, because you have type one, you can't control how much insulin you produce, but you can control how much insulin you need. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what is really interesting to me, and I've having interviewed so many people now that have type two, a lot of the women are all in a very similar age range, whether they're perimenopausal, menopausal. Is there some sort of link to age, especially in women and type two diabetes? It seems like it all happens in 40s, 50s. A lot of people get diagnosed. Have you noticed that at all? I have, but unfortunately it's showing up earlier and earlier, right? Because insulin resistance is also becoming more and more prevalent. So here's why. Women are very hormonally uh, challenged, but blessed, okay? So even though we don't see it that way, because we don't really understand our body and our hormones, while we are in our reproductive years, except for people that have insulin-resistant reproductive concerns, such as PCOS, we have a very, very big metabolic advantage over our male counterparts, okay? our heart disease, diabetes risk, and all of that only starts to equalize to our male counterparts post-menopause because pre-menopause, we have these wonderful, complicated uh, hormones that are actually uh, uh, protective, okay? So it is true that as women start to reach, we do think of menopause as this doom and gloom sort of uh, phase, but it really isn't. It is a phase and it is a change, uh, a, a phase in life and it is a, a time of change. So it's obviously challenging. It does come with these very uh, sort of debilitating and uh, for some women more than others, uh, but in and of itself, it's not an illness, but because we lose that hormonal advantage, we are, we're now not at a worse place than men are. We're just at the same place that they are when it comes to developing heart disease and diabetes. If we understand this, and particularly if we learn to understand insulin's many functions, because up until now, we thought insulin's only function was to lower blood sugars, or eventually people started to realize that insulin had a function in regulating our fat storage, right? Uh, that came, you know, around the time that Dr. Fung wrote the obesity code, people started to realize that, oh, insulin has such a powerful, it is, it's the insulin, it's not calories, it's, it's hormone, it's the hormones that are causing the, the, the obesity epidemic. If we realize this, if we learn this, then we may start to look at menopause as not this doom and gloom state, but only to look at, okay, so pre-menopause, I have a hormonal advantage, which I should, I should know about, and I should take advantage of, but women don't know. Uh, post-menopause, I can't, I don't have that. I've lost that. But what do I have? I still have control over my insulin. I can still lower my insulin. So what's happening is that because we no longer have this hormonal advantage, we do become more insulin resistant. But remember that you can bring yourself up the spectrum and you can bring yourself down the spectrum. So you can't increase your est estrogen or progesterone unless you supplement right? With hormone replacement therapy, but you can still learn. And, and the most successful people in our program are postmenopausal women because they're so knowledgeable, I think. And because they've been through so much that they find this and they're like, oh, this is it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's one of those things where when I found it as well, even though, you know, obviously I have type one, so it's a little bit different, but having tried every diet under the sun and every possible way to manage my diabetes, especially the intermittent fasting part really clicked like, oh, during those hours, I can take my basal insulin down to practically nothing. And that's great because then I, it, it totally boosts my insulin sensitivity, um, which you know, that that's a, a type one term type twos probably won't be familiar with that, but that means how well your insulin is working. And it's just during that's, those hours, it's, exact it's same for It's the exact same for type two, right? So you, you want to become less insulin resistant, more insulin sensitive, right? So that your body will respond to lower doses of insulin. Yeah, there you go. Um, so actually, if we could, maybe we can talk a little bit about the fasting method, because you took us right up to your practice in Mozambique. And maybe you can talk to us now about the second half of your career. I mean, it really feels like you've had 10 careers in your life, but maybe you could take us to the second half, which is involved meeting Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos and the fasting method and all those things. It's only really been two. It's the, the pre-fasting uh, method and, and during fasting method. So 10 years in Mozambique and uh, the last few with uh, the fasting method. So I met Dr. Jason Fung at a conference in San Diego in 2016. And I had stalked him up until then, uh, but I think he ignored me a little bit. But luckily for me, I met him in person and I was with a team of, of people from South Africa that he knew and they knew me and we were introduced. And that weekend he invited me to meet Megan at the clinic in Toronto. I already lived in Toronto. That's why I was stalking them. I wanted to work with them and only wanted to work with them. And I met Megan that week and I started working with them uh, ever since. So I stayed with them in clinic for a couple of years. So we did, uh, which was amazing. I had clinical experience. So it was an easy transition for me to work in clinic in, in the field that I had been working in already. And um, even before the pandemic, our entire pro program went online. So we're, we're very much used to working with people all over the world online. So we do have a coaching program and we do have a community, which is where I mostly work in at this point. I was, Megan and I were the only coaches. Then of course uh, she's hired more coaches and ha has done the proper training with all this, those coaches based on our experience together. And uh, we do master classes and we do a podcast together. Megan and I have a podcast together and uh, I have started doing health consultations as well. So I am a health consultant for, I have restarted because I had taken a break from doing health consultations as we were working on our podcast or masterclass in our community. So the community program is actually one of the biggest parts of our program because the, the, the knowledge and the information is out there right? If people want to get it, I know it's conflicting, confusing at times, but the information is there. Um, it's the support that people really need. And we have a colleague that works with us, Dr. Terry Lance, she's a behavioral psychologist. And so she's a huge part of our community and, and the support of our community, because, uh, you know, learning, uh, how to how to deal with your relationship with food mindset paradigm shift i mean these are all things that uh, i myself am still I, I well i will be learning for the rest of my life but it's not my area of expertise it's definitely dr terry lance's and i learn a ton from her so that i can help my patients as well yeah i listened to your podcast episodes you know looked around on your website it looks like one of the really interesting things about the fasting method the way that you have it structured is all of your coaches have walked the walk in some capacity, whether it's PCOS or t type two diabetes that they reversed or something like that. That's kind of unique because a lot of people don't come to it with that personal experience as a coach. 
one of our coaches calls us the wounded healers. Uh, and I, I believe that to be a hundred percent true. Yeah. And so, I mean, like you, <laughs> I'm trying, <laughs> it's not really a lot of, uh, you get a lot of pushback when you're a type one, uh, trying to do intermittent fasting. My endocrinologist has been very supportive, but I've heard from many other type ones that their endocrinologists say, no, you can't go without eating. That's ridiculous. You're going to get a low blood sugar. And we all say, but, we but get low get blood a, sugars all the time. <laughs> you <laughs> get them. a lot of pushback from yeah. no matter what, but I definitely think, like I said, type ones is definitely the hardest. So anything and everything that you can, that you can learn and teach people is going to be extremely useful. Yeah. Thank you. And so you've been doing this now. You, I, I guess you met Dr. Jason Fung six years ago and working with him in some capacity ever since. Maybe, and I know there's so many success stories to choose from, so I'm not gonna say pick your favorite one, but what, what kind of things do you see? What kind of success stories do you encounter? I assume it's like almost on a daily basis now. It's hard because <laughs> I mean, it is on a daily basis. Right. And you become close with people for sure within our community. I, I am, I consider myself a member of our community because of how much I learn and share with them uh, and how much of a human I am. Um, so I'm very lucky to be part of that community. So it's really hard to pick one story, but I, you know, there's certain things that really, uh, and I'm, I'm a crier too. So every time somebody tells a, a <laughs> tells their own whatever they start crying I start crying but that's kind of how our community goes uh we learn and cry together but you know the 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 pregnancy things touch me of course because I went through it myself but I went through so many things right I went through hypertension and diabetes and miscarriages and uh so many things so it's it's today as I said so I'm just gonna use the one today so today it's a young woman in our program that has been very very active in our community um she had uh I'm not gonna give too much uh, information away but you know anyway she basically at some point said I'm just gonna do what I'm told I'm gonna read the book I'm gonna join the meetings I'm just gonna do it and you know gave me really great news today and so these are great success stories but again uh I work with diabetics every single day. People with diabetes that reverse diabetes get off of insulin every single day. Type two diabetics, of course. Uh, you know, I, I work with people who weren't able to get out of the house and go to an amusement park with their kids. And now they can because they've lost 150 pounds. You know, there's just amazing stories every single day. So it's almost impossible to pick one story. Yeah, I'll bet. And on that topic, I guess, to sort of, you know, bring things to a close here. Obviously you've written a book with Dr. Jason Fung and is that a place that you recommend people get started? If they're just, let's say they just got a diagnosis of PCOS or maybe type two diabetes or insulin resistance. Where do you think people should start out? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to plug my book <laughs> because I think it was well-written because it was written with Jason and I. Um, I think it's a great book to read whether you've been diagnosed with PCOS or not. I, a lot of people come to me and they want a diagnosis, like I said. So they want me to diagnose. I think they should read the book. They should understand what insulin resistance is. And luckily it explains it very well. So even if you don't have PCOS, even if you're a man, if you read the PCOS plan, you can you can understand all the different like 
functions, not, not all, because there's probably more than we don't even know, but many of the different functions of insulin and phases of insulin. And, uh, and so the book is, is divided up into different sections. Um, and it has a practical section at the end. So it has recipes. Mm -hmm. So for sure, I, I recommend my book. I think it's a great, amazing book, but within our team, there's so many great books. I think the first book that people read and should read is the obesity code. Uh, if there is a diabetes, of course, uh, uh, expression to your particular insulin resistance, for sure, the, the second book, which is the diabetes code. Um, and you've got uh, other ones in that line that Dr. Fung has written um, and Megan have written. They, they have a best-selling, uh, you know, best New York uh, bestsellers, the life in the fasting lane. I mean, that, that is, it's a book that blew everyone away that they wrote with Eve Meyer. It was a completely amazing, amazing story and book transformation and whatnot. So yeah, that definitely, uh, they would go that route. Our program or the fasting method.com uh, program has gone through a lot of evolution transformation over time. As I said, we now have a heavy focus on community and behavioral uh, aspect of our program, which is really great. So besides the courses, the master classes, the information, there's that type of support as well that I think at this point we realize most people need. Yeah, the emotional component of it is huge. And if you don't have that part, you won't succeed at it. So that's smart to have that incorporated so strongly into it. The most important part, I think, and, and it's, it's the tools, right, is teaching people how to be your own self-coach, how to be your own kind self-coach, positive self-coach, because we're so heavily focused on uh, negativity. I think, for, you know, we've just been taught uh, to harp on and to focus so much on all the things that we're not doing or not eating, as opposed to all the things that we are doing or, or are eating. And, and so there's a, there's, there's a lot of uh, support in, in learning there, I think, thanks to Terry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And is there anything else that you wanted to mention? I'll, obviously, in the notes, I'll put your book, your podcast, which is a great podcast. I listen to it every single time there's a new episode up and then the Fasting Method website. Is there anywhere else that you want people to find you? I'm on Instagram, but all you're going to get there is uh, a bit more of the same, right? Uh, on Tuesdays, our podcast episodes come out. Um, I share a lot of my personal journey. So for example, I have a CGM, like you probably do, yep. a continuous glucose monitor. So I share a lot uh, when I do well and when I don't do well. A lot of the times it's just, uh, I, I use my humanness to uh, have a teachable moment for myself and others. Like what happens when I eat candy, for example, mm -hmm. that was one of my latest. So I am on Instagram and, and that's where I'm mo most active. I'm not very active on Facebook. I'm not active at all on Twitter, so you won't find me I'm not there. either. I don't even have a Twitter account, so. <laughs> I have it. I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. And I really appreciate your time today. It's been just very informative. So, and thank you for making all those connections for us. Because I, I think a lot of lay people like myself aren't quite sure of the connection between insulin resistance and PCOS and type 2 diabetes. So you actually explained a great deal that clarified a lot of things. So thank you. Well, thank you. I, even though I went to school uh, for a lot of these things, I didn't learn this in school. Life yeah. taught me this and other colleagues taught me uh, along the way and other patients taught me the most along the way. So it's my pleasure. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, please email me at fastlife.com 
with diabetes at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.